You're listening to the Root and Stem Podcast, a podcast exploring issues and stories in STEAM education. This episode is the first of a two-part series featuring Dene author Richard Van Camp. Richard is the writer behind the ongoing graphic novel series, The Spirit of Denen Day, which he will cover in length in the next episode. But first, we will learn the story of Richard Van Camp and his approach to writing and publishing as an Indigenous author. Hello, everybody. It's Richard Van Camp. I live in Edmonton, Alberta, Treaty 6 country, and I was born and raised in the most beautiful little town in all of Canada, Fort Smith, Northwest Territories, Denon Day. What do I do? I write books and I tell stories. That's it. That's all. Oh, and I collect Star Wars toys and I collect comic books and I love life. My family, because I was born and raised in Fort Smith, Northwest Territories, my parents, uh, Jack and Rosa Van Camp, they had to go back to the University of Calgary for their degrees. My dad is a biologist and an instructor. Uh, He's now retired. And my mom, of course, wanted to be a teacher, Rosa. And we just moved down to Calgary. We were supposed to be there for two years to go to U of C as a family. And I would, my little brother, Roger, and I went to Sunnyside Elementary And we got there, we unpacked the house, we were staying at a little housing, Sunnyside housing co-op at the bottom of Nose Hill. And we were running around, I think a couple of weeks after we'd moved into Calgary, and my appendix exploded in my stomach, and I fainted. And I ended up waking up in the Calgary Children's Hospital. And I woke up in an oxygen tent, I was in a lot of pain. I had a little drainage tube sticking out of my stomach and one of my lungs had collapsed and my blood had turned septic. And had we been in Fort Smith, Northwest Territories, I wouldn't be here talking to you today. So gradually, as I got better, we were allowed to have visitors and our two neighbors, we'd just gotten to know them, Chris and Toby, and I'm sorry, I don't know their last names. Maybe they're going to listen to this one day. They showed up with all their comic books. And I do believe that they were told that I wasn't going to make it. That, and, and I know my mom told me that they had told her to go home and start making arrangements because your little boy probably isn't going to live. I just can't imagine what that must have done to my mom and to my father. And, and uh, so one of the comic books that Chris and Toby gave me, I mean, there was a pile of Sergeant Rock and the Unknown Soldier and Conan and you name it, it was all there. But one of them was actually right here. I've got it. It was the Warlord issue 13 and I read it and I suddenly fell in love with reading and artwork and a cool story. It's written by Mike Grell. It's illustrated by Mike Grell. It's published by DC comics. So I read this comic book. I swear it must've been four or five times a day. I just couldn't get enough. And and I made it myself a promise. I said, Hey, I'm not going to die because I, I want to live. And B, I'm going to track down the first 12 copies when I get out of here. So sure enough, I was released. And it took me a long time to get my strength up. But I remember taking my little crutch with my brother down to Sunnyside Confectionery by Hot Wax Records. If you know anything about Calgary, there's Hot Wax Records still going strong. As far as I know, it's still going strong. And uh, I ended up walking in and saying to the owner, excuse me, but um, do you have the first 12 copies of The Warlord by Mike Grell? And he looked at me and he started laughing and he said, no, we're up to, we're up to issue 40 something. And 
I was so happy because suddenly I had a quest, a life quest. It wasn't just you got to track down the first 12 copies of the Warlord. I had to cop, you know, track down over 40 copies of the Warlord. And it took me years to find them all, all the back issues and continue with the series. And, you know, I read them for years. I have every single one. I got a long box back there. Mike Grell's The Warlord really was my welcome into a place and a, and a world and characters that I just became family to me. And that is really where I became, first it was comic books. And then of course, as a child of the eighties, I got into Judy Bloom and Essie Hinton and Stephen King. And then when I got into college, I discovered, you know, the, the poetry of Christos and I got into Bill Valgridson, the girl with the Botticelli face. I think that those are, are really my welcome into what is possible as, as something that I want to experience as a reader and something that I'm always trying to do as a writer. Growing up in Fort Smith, Northwest Territories, for those of you who don't know, Fort Smith NWT is on the 60th parallel. We're at the end of Highway 5. Now, people from Fort Smith say we're at the beginning of Highway 5. You can go anywhere from Fort Smith. Um, we're the gateway to Wood Buffalo National Park, and we're the pumpkin capital of the Northwest Territories. So we're officially quadrilingual. And what that means is Chippewayan French... Uh, Cree and English are spoken at any given time. We're the Métis capital of the Northwest Territories. It's a beautiful community, gorgeous community on the banks of the Slave River. So population 2,500, everybody's got the goods on everybody. Everybody knows everything that you possibly can about everybody, right? So if one starts singing and the other starts singing, right, the continent is going to drift into the ocean. I mean, we're carrying the weight of the world with what we know about each other, right? Everybody's fooled around with somebody's brother or sister at some point, right? It's beautiful. We could have been kin. We could have been family. You know what I mean? So growing up in Fort Smith as a child of the 70s and the 80s, I remember my first realization that something was, was wrong with our language system in the public school. And I can prove it. So my birthday is September 8th. So it must have been September 8th, 1976, kindergarten. We get there. We've got new little lunch boxes, backpacks, runners, crisp brand new little jeans, right? We're showing up in our little Oshkosh bagoshes. I mean, we biz we mean business. We've all gotten little pig shaves, <laughs> even, the, even the young girls, right? I mean, we are dressed for success, JBT Elementary. And most of us are Dene or Métis or Inuit. Some of us are Northerners where our families have chosen to live their lives in the Northwest Territories. We're all friends. And... All my heroes growing up were Chippewayan, Cree, Gwich'in, Mountain, Hare, Inuit, Métis, Dogrib, you know, our own people. And suddenly, for language, we were all shuffled into French class. And I remember very clearly being five years old on my birthday, looking around, and I believe it was Mrs. Bevington. It must have been Mrs. Bevington or Mrs. Swanson, who are wonderful human beings. And I remember looking at these, at these gorgeous brown faces. And French began, right? Je suis, tu a, il a, nous sommes. And I remember feeling a crystallization inside of me that that I was in the wrong room. We were all this was this was there was a mistake. We're all like, why are we why are we learning French? I don't want to learn. I'm not French. I'm never going to use French. What a, what a terrible waste of time for Mrs. Swanson or Mrs. Bevington. Like they're obviously wasting their time. This is the wrong class, right? And I remember going home and asking my mom, like, why aren't like why aren't we learning Cree? Why aren't we learning 
Shipway on? Why aren't we learning Gwich'in or Mountainer? Why aren't we learning Dogrib? Why aren't we learning Machif? Why aren't we learning the 11 official languages that are in the Western Arctic or what we call Denende? And what we were told was that the Trudeau government at that time wanted all Canadians to be bilingual and that second language had to be French. And so the deal was that if, if we couldn't speak French when we went to college or university, we would not be allowed in. So we go K through 12. We were burning through teachers who just don't want to be there. Most of us don't want to be in French. I think we all graduated with a D plus out of French 30. And then we go off to college and university. And what you realize is you didn't need French. You just needed money. That was, that was the big lie of it all. And we just felt so betrayed. My mom always said, you know, go off, go, go down south, get your education. You can always learn it later. You can always learn it later, right? So to answer your question, the power of language is sitting in a room with your own grandparents, but not understanding a word that they're saying and having to use your mother or your uncles as a translator. Thank God I recorded all those visits. I always traveled with a little tape recorder as I got older. So I have so many visits that are recorded. And then I'm, you know, I'm 51 now and I'm still in kindergarten with Tlicho Dene. So my introduction that I shared with you, I was not able to say that four months ago. But luckily, Nordic College is offering a free Tlicho language class for anyone. And it's the basics, what we call kitchen or survival Tlicho. And you learn the basics, how to introduce yourself, how to say no, how to ask for things. And it's it's beautiful. It's empowering. I wish my grandparents were still alive so I could introduce myself to them the way that I just introduced myself to you. So I think the beauty of Indigenous literature is that so many of us are reclaiming what was almost lost and stolen from us, whether it's recipes, names, songs, prayers, language, connections to the land. And we're using literature and, and our art to help others, not just ourselves, but for others who want to learn as well. I tell stories the only way I know how. And I think that that all the work I've been doing the last 31 years, you know, the first 20 years, I was just a mammal. You know what I mean? A little baby platypus on the planet. And, uh, I, you know, uh, loving the 70s, loving the 80s. 90s were a bit bit dark but I you know I went off to college university and then realizing the after the big lie that I had a responsibility you know I I really do believe you've got to fill your own love cup so remember I think it was art who was it art there was a very famous artist who said you got to quit crying on the shoulders of the man who stole you stole your land you got to quit crying on the shoulders of the man who stole your land I never thought I remember thinking man that's a working man's PhD right there. There's, there's, that was almost like Buddha said that. You got to quit lying, right? You got to quit crying on the shoulders of the man who stole you. So I could spend the rest of my life blaming, you know, the government colonization, this great culture of extinguishment that's been attempted time and time and time again on indigenous people. Because somebody also said, I wish I knew who all these wonderful speakers were. Somebody said colonization costs resources. Indigenous people are always in the way of those resources. Isn't that interesting? And you see these models in place where workers from different parts of the country who have no relationship to the land, the history, or the people who are being paid very well come up and work. 
And so anytime you have a, a local person trying to defend the land, the waterways, the waterfowl, suddenly they're the enemy because this is their home. They're going to be here long after you make your $160,000 a year for the next 12 years and pay off your house wherever. This is their home. They have to live with what you're doing and their children's children, seven generations from now, are going to have to live with what you're doing right now. And all they're asking for is, is for the land and the water to be protected, of course, in the air and everything else that goes with it. So we see this time and time and time again. So that was a segue. Here's my response is that with, with all that I have learned and continue to learn, I'm so excited to, to braid that into my literature. I always try and reclaim one thing. So when you read my book, when we play our drums, they sing. I was able to track down my uncle Alexi in Yellowknife. And, you know, in, I'm from Smith, so we're pretty bossy. And I say, you know what, uncle? You used to be my favorite uncle. And he was just trying to have pancakes. He was just trying to greet the day. A cup of coffee, maybe a couple little strips of bacon. And he said, what? What are you talking about? I said, I said you never told me one Cleacho children's story the whole time that you would show up and mooch supper. You even showed up with Tupperware, right? I mean, come on. How many times do you mooch free supper, lunch, breakfast? And he says, well, so so you're just saying I never told you a children's story? I said, yeah, never. And I need one for my new book. And he goes, okay, I'll tell you one right now. And I pull out my phone. Thank God we got a voice recorder on the iPhone. And he told me the most beautiful story. He talked about when Bear had a long tail. It's the most beautiful Cleacho teaching story and after we were done, I said, can I thank you? I love you. You're, congratulations. You're still number one. Out of all my uncles, you're back. You're back in the good books. Um, can I send you some money when I get back to uh, Edmonton? And I have to send you a little contract just to say that you're giving me permission to share this story. And uh, I'll send it to you so you can make sure that you're happy with it because I need it for a little novella I'm working on. And he said, so, so you're going to pay me again? Like, you guys are feeding me and you're going to pay me some more. I said, yeah. He goes, okay, that's a good deal, nephew. And uh, that's what I love doing is that if I don't, if I need it for a story, I'm happy to go to those who know and pay them and get their permission so that you move forward. So in the spirit of Denny book two, as I unfold you in petals, we have an, an Inuit character named Crow, who's a shaman. And growing up in Fort Smith, there was a mother you know, of an Inuit family. And I knew her for years, you know, her son hung out with my little brothers. And then a couple of years ago, I was on White Ave here in Edmonton. I saw her at CIBC and she had reclaimed her traditional Inuit facial tattoos. And she looked so beautiful and so strong and so powerful and so ancient and I just walked up and I just said, wow, look at you, you know, and she really shared that there's so much reclaiming happening now that she's moved back to her home community. And, and I, you know, I always put these big amazement moments in my heart. And then as we were working on, or I was working on the story, I thought, you know, I really want to honor this fictional character I have named Crow, but I finally want to bring her into the illustrated medium. And I've shared the stage a couple of times with Hovac Johnston, uh, who is a traditional Inuit tattooist and has her facial tattoos and her hand tattoos. And, and I got in touch with her and I said, Hovac, I, I'm working on a beautiful comic book. Um, 
I'd love to show you the sketches we're working on for a character. Um, I'm really interested. This series is about reclaiming our culture, our languages, our traditions. I do not want to, I mean, no disrespect. I'm looking for a cultural consultant to, to give us a blessing on the use of traditional Inuit facial and hand tattoos moving forward. And she wrote back and just said, well, yeah, you, you can use me. You want to pay me? That'd be great. And, and um, yeah, why don't you just use my tattoos? And we were just so happy to have her permission and consent moving forward. And that's what this is all about it, is if I don't know it, teach me. I'm happy to learn. I'm happy to pay you because I want to have a team where if we don't, we, we never want to be disrespectful. We just we're so proud of all the reclaiming that we see happening all over Den and Day right now. You know, we're still in the shadows of the residential schools that my mother attended and all my uncles attended. You know, there are 160,000 plus kids right across this this con this country that were stolen. And I, I saw on Facebook somebody renamed a residential school. Let's say it's the Sturgeon Lake Residential School. Somebody reclaimed it. And I don't know who it is, and I apologize. It says Sturgeon Lake Child Confinement Center. And I thought, brilliant. That's exactly what they were. I mean, they were designed to be culture killers, right, to make us ashamed of ourselves. That was Bishop Grandin's vision, um, his own words. Um, so I really want to honor survivors and those who didn't come home, and I just want to show the beauty and and the dignity and the grace that I see happening across this, you know, this beautiful country of ours. And uh, I'm really proud that we have the dream team with, with Highwater Press. You know, it's a huge investment to do a full color graphic novel with the French flaps. And I can see that, you know, with books one and two, A Blanket of Butterflies and As I Unfold You in Petals, no expense has been spared. You know, I've finally found my publishing home for, for my comic books. I'm really proud to be with Highwater Press. Very proud. You know, how I got into comic books was I was living in Vancouver. I was teaching at UBC. I taught there for eight years. I was I got my master's there, my MFA at UBC. And then uh, Linda Svensson, our chair, asked us, you know, uh, Sapitza, who was one of their instructors, um, the, the late and great Dr. Shirley Sterling, got her dream job back in her community as the principal. It was, it was the one job she always wanted. So I remember getting a call one day from Linda Svensson saying, how would you like to be, you know, our instructor? And I had not completed my MFA, but I had several books out at that point. And I said, well, I'd love to take over Shirley's class. It, it was called it was called Creative Writing for Aboriginal Students. This is a very long time ago. And I ended up teaching this course for eight years. And it was wonderful. It was great. So many of the students that I got to, to cheerlead, I don't know if I mentored them, but I certainly cheerleaded them, are off doing wonderful things. And uh, I was really, you know, many of us are still friends on Facebook and I see their successes as parents and as artists. But there was a company called the Healthy Aboriginal Network that was just starting. And I got in touch with the publisher, Sean Muir. And he said, uh, yeah, you're a writer. How'd you like to be an editor for Steve Sanderson? And Steve Sanderson is Cree. Uh, he is six foot 11. He's gorgeous. Poor guy. You know, every man has his cross to bear. And let, let's be honest. I mean, the Cree just how much sexy can the planet handle? Can I just, can I just put that out there? Anyways. So I, I said I would definitely be a helper uh, for Steve Sanderson uh, because I got to see several of the comic books that, that Steve had put out. And Steve Sanderson is the triple threat. 
he shows up he has got the artwork he's written the stories and he does the voices for our animatics and so i was able to to be there for steve and then one day sean said well listen we just got some funding from health canada and we got to come up with an issue why, why don't you write something come on you got a pile of books out it, there's got to be something out there and i went yes yes there is because in grade eight we had the worst sexual health talk and class in on in the plant on the planet and i can prove it so i don't know how old your listeners are but basically in grade eight the the ladies got the gym for three hours and there was a film projector and a trampoline and the church donated the popcorn machine uh, what they did there for three hours it's don't ask don't tell i think there was a blood oath anyways when they came out you know how you can't see partridges feet when they run it was like all these women walked like they just glided out and they were like i was born with every egg i'm ever gonna need and then that was it they were gone the guys got the drafting room and in the hallway were all the old hockey bags from the hockey team the men's hockey team they were just airing them out and it, it smelled like hot nachos and ball sweat do you know what i mean like it smelled like hyenas and hay it was just revolting and i remember my glasses started fogging up just as i walked into the sex health room and we all had to get little pamphlets signed pink pamphlets signed by our parents or guardians that we were allowed to learn about sex sex health anyways the freaking minister was was there with our guidance counselor and our principal and i remember the minister was praying uh, it was very against that we were going to learn about our bodies and sensuality and sexuality and you know brave little warriors we go in there and our mr allen was our our principal and mr allen was our guidance counselor and mr allen already had the giggles he just couldn't believe that we were going to learn sex health with the minister in the room um, doing the rosary praying for our souls right and so they did something really interesting and they said uh, we're going to play a game called pass the toque pass the toque so everyone you're allowed to write anything you want to know you want to know about the women you want to know about sex you want to know about your bodies write down on a piece of paper keep it anonymous boys you know and uh anything goes that's it let's go right now because they had to outsmart the minister right who was praying so in the 80s we we did these little cootie catchers Do you know what cootie catchers are they're like you make these little diamonds <laughs> with a, with paper in your fingers like when you had a crush you'd go like in grade seven i'm sir chelsea so dear chelsea do you like me yes or no and you open it up and chelsea would say no <laughs> and that'd be a ton of back through your best friend and then hearts would be broken right so on, our, on these little cootie catches we got to write anything we wanted right there were diagrams pie graphs it was just like this is like serious you're what the one thing i and i couldn't even tell you what i asked is probably something pretty minor you know there wasn't a whole lot going on back then in grade eight right still isn't Anyways, I remember this big stinky old toque came around, and the same toque they've been using for 20 years in this apparent ritual, and we all put our little cootie catchers in there. And then uh, it, you know, Mr. Malinchuk opened up each one. And I remember he would he would go, okay, so the question the, the question we have here, and he'd start doing the cootie catcher thing where he's moving his fingers, right? Like little swallow mouths, right? And he'd go, okay, so the first question we oh, for goodness sakes, how do you I can't even read this? He would unfold it. We go, we go okay so the first no oh god no 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 that is illegal 
That is illegal in 50s. Oh, no, no, no. We're not. Boys, that's strike one. You know what you did. That's strike one. Okay, thin ice, guys. Come on. Okay, another one. Sorry, minister. Sorry. Sorry, reverend. Pray for them, Lord. Pray for them. And then, <laughs> and then they did that for two and three. And he never told us what the question was. And we were all sent to the to detention. We all got a detention. That was our sex ed class. And it was just the most ridiculous thing in the whole wide world. So at that moment when Sean Muir said, well, there's got to be one thing you want to write about. And I went, yes, I want to write the sex health manual that I wish I would have read when I was in grade eight. And so everyone who's listening, it's, it's out of print, but you can go online and read it for free with permission. All you have to do is you can go to my website, richardvancamp.com, and you can read it for free. And uh, we gave, I'm really proud of this. We gave 10,000 copies away for free all over the Northwest Territories because apparently we were told by, there's more to the story. I, I don't want to take too much time away, but basically because my mom called, they brought in a public health nurse to the school the next day and she had an assembly with the girls, right? We're only learning about them. What are they doing here, right? This is not, right? When they had their three-hour symposium yesterday with trampolines, and the popcorn machine, they didn't invite us in, but suddenly here they are. I guess this is okay. Um, she informed us that we were living in in the sexual sexually transmitted infection capital of Canada. That she she swore it up and down, and she put the fear in us, and she basically told us we were all going to get an STI, and um, and that was the end of it. And she just it was ruled ruling by fear and that's why everyone was we were all virgins well into our late 40s because we were so scared and, and and so anyways if you want to read a great funny welcoming gentle read read kiss me deadly by and i think that's the gift of literature and being a creator is that when those soul crimes are committed against you and your innocence right is you know michelle obama says you got to protect your light when when the little light thieves come and and rob you of that the gift of literature and being a creator is that you get to go back and say here's what i wish i would have been told in grade eight and and that's that and what better way to talk about sensuality and sex than to use humor and to make it it fun because it should be fun right we should be learning about ourselves and each other in a really fun and gentle way you don't have any challenges if you, if you really respect that the story is the boss and you, you do your absolute best. The hard work is finding a publisher because every publisher has specialized. So the days of McClellan and Stewart publishing your poetry, your novel, your cookbook, your memoirs, those days are gone. In my opinion, I mean, I've got 13 different publishers, but each one specializes in what they do. So you may have, uh, you know, a, my publisher for my baby books is Orca Books. That's that's what they do. We've done wonderfully. I, you know, I did show them my new novel, Beast. They're getting out of young adult. And what I've learned is it's not personal. It's not personal. It's just not what they do. They And what they're doing is they're actually protecting you as the author saying, we, we would, this four years of your life and these 400 pages would turn into a brick. We don't have the connections that Douglas and McIntyre, Penguin Random House, Scholastic, you need to go with somebody who this is where this is all they do. 
because they're connected to their readership. And that's really the best part is, is really letting go of ego and working with the right publisher and finding that the, the one perfect publishing home for your manuscript. That's, that's the challenge. And so much about publishing is waiting. So you can finish your, your novel, your, your short story collection, your poetry collection. That's the difficult part I find for a lot of writers is the not knowing. And I always say, well, you know, that is the universe's way of saying it's time to start something new. You've done all you can. And in fact, you may injure it if you keep tinkering. You've got to start something new for your own sanity. You have to start something new so that when you get the yes, no, or maybe you go, oh, geez, I forgot about that, that old thing. And then when you look at a manuscript that you haven't looked at for four months, you go, oh, God, I can't believe I sent that in. Oh, look at all the typos. Oh, I could do so much better. And then you dive back in. It's a dance. If I could say there are certain publishers that will, that are very, they'll let you know right off the bat. We don't want any swearing. We don't want any sex. We don't want any drugs. We don't want any, there can't be any violence. That's not our market. We're an educational, you know, we want to say, we're not interested in selling 2,600 copies. We're interested in selling 26,000 copies to various school districts, to school districts. If you put this word in there, this will cost us 26,000 copies of your book to be sold. And you need to know that moving forward. Whereas there are other publishers that say, no man, let fly. You can, you can swear. You can, you can do whatever you want. Take us where a 16 year old growing up in Fort Smith, Northwest territories in 1984. What was that like? And you go, well, do you really want to know? Cause with me, I don't know if you can handle this. A lot of Dungeons and Dragons. If you can handle Dungeons and Dragons, hoagies, gold cola, pinch hickeys, a mullet, a rat tail. If you can handle that, I got a story for you. Right. And like, you got anything else? <laughs> so little, we were hoping for something a little bit more risque. Well, I don't know, man. Attack of the Lizard King, Volume 1. I mean, we were eight months. The troglodytes, when they came after us, I tell you, I almost started lactating. I don't know what to tell you. You know what I mean? I was so scared. You know, as a writer right now, 2023, you've got these great Indigenous publishing houses. You've got Kegadon's Press. You've got the Gabriel DeMond Society. You've got Inhabit Media. You've got Thetis Books. You've got, you know whatever the healthy Aboriginal network, they've just changed their name. You've got these indigenous publishing houses that are well-established and they're doing very well. You also have major publishing houses. I mean, you look at Eden Robinson's publishing house, Sri Demelon, you've got Penguin Random House, you've got Swiftwater uh, with David Robertson's, his new imprint with Penguin Random House. You've got HarperCollins. You've got some of the biggest publishers in Canada right now that are publishing Indigenous literature. You also have some of the biggest agents in Canada that are actively representing and looking for more Indigenous writers to represent. This is this is really our time to tell our own stories our own way. And there are agents and publishers right now that are only too happy to accommodate that. You look at the best-selling list right now for poetry, nonfiction, fiction, children's literature, a lot of those titles on all those lists are Indigenous because, and I think the world is very interested in reading stories from us being told our own way. That That's what excites me the most is in Indigenous literature, you never know who's going to come out of left field and knock you on your ass and, and, stab, and, and really astonish you. And that's good. That's what you want. And I feel with Indigenous literature that the success of one is really the success 
for everybody else because we're all breaking trail for each other. You know what I think is happening? I think with filmmaking, I think a lot of Indigenous directors and writers are being taken advantage of by producers. That's what I think because I think where the money is and the funding in this country, a lot of it goes, of course, to the producers first. And I think that what I've seen lately with certain friends of mine is that how poorly they're being treated by non-Indigenous producers. So if you're a non-Indigenous producer and you've secured big bucks for a project that's Indigenous-based, pay your people well because people talk and people have a long memory. And my question to y'all is, how do you want to be remembered? How do you want to work on your legacy now? Why wouldn't you want to be a friend to Indigenous people? Why wouldn't you want to be remembered as generous, somebody who who helped build careers, somebody who mentored, gave all they could and gave more, somebody who was there to uplift and encourage, right? And, you know, with The Lesser Blessed, the movie, $2.2 million, it took us seven years to make. I remember having a talk with, with our producer, Cristino Piovazan of First Generation Films, and I remember saying really clearly, if we don't launch one Northern career as an actor, with everything we've done, we've all failed here. We've all failed. That's the whole point is we've got to be here to launch careers at this stage in the game, mid career. And that's something I'm really proud to do, whether it's somebody who wants to be an actor, somebody who wants to be a director and I get to help them out with their screenplay. If it's somebody wants to be whatever it is, an entrepreneur, that's how I want to be remembered as somebody who gave all they could and more. Why don't you, want to be remembered that way as well. So anyone listening who's sitting on a a pile of cash that grant writers have secured for you, and this is an Indigenous story that you're about to produce or direct or move forward with, pay your people very well because they deserve it. Maybe that's what this big strike's all about. Hey, hey, don't forget where the States goes, Canada's never too far behind. Here's what I've learned. In my 27 years, I've learned that the story is the boss, number one. So I love it when, when a publisher calls me or gets in touch with me and says, would you write something that is four pages as an illustrated story? So how I work is I only like to do six panels. And so I've got 24 panels to tell a story. And, and so I don't want to give too much away because we're still working on it, but Here's what I've learned. When a story comes, you have to decide, is it a poem? Is it a one-page novel? Is it a tweet? Is it an Instagram update? Is it a novel, a novella, a short story? Is it a children's story? Is it a baby book? Is it a poem? What exactly does this want to be? And I think Robert Creeley said it best. Robert Creeley said, form should echo content. Form should echo content. So to anyone just starting out, please remember these words. Form should echo content by the great Robert Creeley. The story is the boss by the homely Richard Van Camp. And and start from there. Now, braiding your identity and, and where you're from, that is absolutely crucial because one of the things you have to think about is where is your story located? Because your traditions, listener, are going to be different from mine. And I'm so proud to share our traditions where I'm from. And when I don't know something, 
I'm only too happy to get in touch with those who know the elders, the knowledge keepers, and, and to pay them very well and to say, can you teach me about this? Because we need to write, if we don't do it, and I can prove it, I can prove it. So in my 40s, as a brand new father, I discovered a book by uh, Patrick. Oh, it's please, please, please. It's, oh, anyways, in this book, there, there's a speech by the great uh, Frank Toselli from Fort Good Hope. And it's, it's a speech that the great Frank Toselli gave when he was 28 years old as a brand new chief in Fort Good Hope in 1976. And the book is called Talking Tools by, it'll hit me later. Can somebody look it up? Because I need to, I don't want to, I don't want to blow this. Because we're friends on Facebook, he's going to slash my tires. Anyways, and it is the greatest speech about the Dene and their relationship to the land. And Frank Toselli gave this speech at the Berger Inquiry in this in, in 1976 when I was five years old, running barefoot up and down Sesame Street in Fort Smith, Northwest Territories. And I was so mad. There's that crystallization again that I had when I was in, you know, when I was in kindergarten on the first day of school in 1976. And that was it. So, yes, it was Patrick Scott. Bless you and thank you, angels. So thanks to Patrick Scott, had Patrick not written down and transcribed Frank Toselli's words, I wouldn't have known that one of the greatest speeches of all time, right up there with Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream, had been spoken when I was five years old by a 28-year-old Dene chief, Frank Toselli. And luckily, CBC had videotaped it and recorded it and uploaded it to YouTube. You can go watch it in its entirety, and you can see the horror and shock of the the oil executives sitting in the room, realizing that this was going to be, they'd already lost the battle of trying to, to get you know the uh, the pipelines through the Northwest Territories. They they'd already lost. They could tell right there. That was the moment. And if CBC ever pulls that footage down. And people don't discover Patrick Scott's beautiful book, Talking Tools. This speech will be lost forever. Forever. And so I challenge anyone out there, if you have something inside of you that you're worried that the world is going to lose, that the world is going to forget, that future generations aren't going to know, write it down. Now, I can. I got some good news. Highwater Press... Catherine Gerbassi got in touch years ago and, and they were working on an anthology called This Place 150 Years Retold. And it was it's such a great conference call because everyone, all my friends and heroes were on this line. And it was all these comic book creators and artists and writers. And Catherine basically just said, and, and the editor, Laura, uh, said, hey, we're working on a new encyclopedia. We want it to go into every classroom across Canada. And you're all here, you're all representing your territory and your province, your traditional homelands. What's the one story you want Canada to know about where you're from? And I said, oh my God, Frank Toselli's speech at the Berger Inquiry. And she said, great, Richard, go with that. We'll be in touch. We'll send, you know, we'll send a contract. Uh, let, do you want to work with Scott Henderson? And I said, absolutely. Absolutely, I want to work with, with Scott Henderson. And and that was really, I think, the first time Scott and I worked together. That's when I saw the power of what Scott could do. Anyways, so he, that that 
realization that if CBC pulled the YouTube video and Patrick Scott's book, Talking Tools, went out of print and people had no idea. Now, here's the good news. I know Mr. Tesselli and I know his family. I got to work with Frank Tesselli over the phone for a number of years. And I got to ask him the million-dollar question. How did you prepare the greatest, one of the greatest speeches of all time? And he said he had three days. But he says, Richard, I had 28 years of listening. I was raised in band council meetings. I was raised at community feasts when the great ones got up to speak. So I just took everything that I had been listening to for 28, 28 years and put it into the speech. And so we have that now in illustrated form. We've got the whole speech down in the comic book um, in this place, 150 years retold. And that's another example of the great reclaiming that's happening because I didn't just do that for me. I did that for all future generations, all Canadians, and anyone that discovers this great, this great encyclopedia. It's an illustrated encyclopedia. And they can say, oh, my God. That's the relationship we keep hearing about from Indigenous people and their relationship to the land. There's no disconnect. And thank goodness it's in comic book form because it's far more accessible had it been in a novel, in a short story, right? My eyes would have glazed over trying to read it. It's just not appropriate. But when you break it down in panels and you show the emotion uh, that Scott did so beautifully well based on the video and the testimony, we we nailed it and we've got that forever. And I'm just so grateful to Frank Tosselli. So grateful. So I don't know again if that answers your question, but there's got to be some gems in there. Number one, story is the boss. Form should echo content. If there's something you're genuinely worried about that the world is is may lose, get permission to be the one to bring it back and go to those who who you know. Never be afraid to ask for help. Pay everyone very well and move forward as a team. And also, if there's something you're really proud of that you want the whole world to know about your culture, your community, where you're from, get that down too. Or anything that's really funny, like really funny, get it down, right? How do you want to be remembered? And also, I was told by my agent, Carolyn Swayze, years ago, a page a day is a book a year. Page a day is a book a year. Get up early. No excuses. God hates a coward. Come on, let's go. So we don't pay the bills, baby. Let's go. Literary success to me is me being able to hold my child's hand every day when we cross the road together. Literary success to me is being able to cook a healthy meal for our family. Literary success to me is a safe home. Literary success to me is being able to get up every day, so excited to get back to the manuscripts that I'm working on, looking forward to the new artwork that's being sent to me by Scott Henderson and Christopher Shy. We're working on a two graphic novel series called We To Go War with my dream artist for the series, Christopher Shy with Renegade Arts Entertainment. The publisher is Alexander Finbo. I'm living my sweetest dreams every single day. I'm so grateful to do what I do. I'm, I'm so grateful to my publishers. I'm so grateful to the artists I get to work with. And I'm so grateful to my editors because they help me take my craft where I never could alone. I'm really grateful that I have that in my life right now. That's literary success. Happiness, peace, pride, excitement. I'm really excited for people to hold our books where I'm really proud of everything that we've done. You know, people ask, what's your favorite book? I love them all because when I look at them, I can remember where I was at that time in my life 
with editors laying the boots to me, seeing the thumbnails and the pencils and the the inks, reading it, you know, a printed up draft where you you catch the last typo before you go to to print, holding the book for the first time. It's it's wonderful. And no artist ever does it alone. I mean, I'm so grateful for for my family, my friends, our community here in Edmonton. Um, we've really become family during the pandemic because so many of us have parents who live far away. So literary success to me is just the joy of getting up every day, racing back into a manuscript, seeing where the characters wanna wanna take it, and just being there to help and and type. That's it. For more knowledge and stories from STEAM professionals, check out the Root and STEM magazine at pingwa.com. And be on the lookout for part two with Richard Van Camp, which will be available for download on the 26th of July on your streaming platform of choice, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google.